Hello, and welcome back to Talking Time. This is Dana Osman, here with my friend Chavruta and Gordon. Our daf today, Mastach Kitubo, daf Nun Aleph, page 51. Well, this is a little bit of a doozy of a daf. And before we get to the elephant in the room on the daf, which we will spend some time talking about, um, I am going to go through a Mishnah that does appear here. And the Mishnah reads as follows. And I think, the, again, the emphasis of this Mishnah is to really underscore the importance of the ketubah and the standard that the ketubah makes. In other words, we did talk about, I think I mentioned before, that we do have some ancient copies of ketubot that people wrote personal things of them, how often a husband could travel, the need to support children from a different marriage. But essentially, this, mar- this mission is going to make the point that there's a minimum standard of what needs to be given in the ketubah, and nothing below can be given than that. So let's say a husband did not give his wife a ketubah. Just the community standard is, right? The bitula, the virgin is going to collect 200 uh, dinars and the widow will collect 100. Because this is basically a stipulation of the court. In other words, this is a court enactment. It's an, you know, it's a law of the Beitin. And it doesn't make a difference even if you have the formal ketubah or not. This is just something that everybody's obligated to do within marriage. Let's say he writes in the ketubah that he'll give her a field worth 100 dinars instead of the 200, which he's actually entitled to, right? And he also didn't write all property I have will be a guarantee for the payment of your marriage contract, Chayev, he's still obligated to pay the full 200 because he basically, he can't say that she can only take a mortgage field for the payment uh, of, uh, of the marriage, con- of the, uh, marriage contract. Shuhu Tana Beit Din, because again, the idea is this is a stipulation of the court um, and uh, his property basically has to be able to give her this full sum. Right. Also, if he didn't write in the marriage, if you're taken captive, I will redeem you and restore you as my wife. Right. And in the case of a priestess, right, that if she were uh, returned to her husband, right, and let's say, she was raped by another man, and then she wasn't allowed, basically, a Kohenic can't return, he will return her to her province. In other words, not just going to leave her that she has to live, but she'll go back to her family. So again, a standard that we saw in the previous Mishnah, that he has to redeem his captive wife. Chayef, he's still Chayef to do these things. Shehud tonight, Beitim, because all this is a stipulation of the Beitim. Nishbet Chayelifutata, right? So if she is taken captive, he's obligated to redeem her. And if he says, I give my wife her bill of divorce and the payment of the marriage contract, the right, and let her redeem herself, right? He's not allowed to do that. So in other words, he can't try out of redeeming her by divorcing her and saying like, all right, I'll divorce her. I'll give her a ketubah, but she can figure out the details. No, he's got to actually figure out how to do it. Right. Let's say he was struck with she falls with some type of illness. Right. He actually has to pay for her medical expenses. Amar. But if he says 
But if he wants to say, I'm divorcing her and here's her Ketuba money, she can cure herself, that is permitted to do. So it's interesting to see that the addition of, right, we, we went through that, you know, there were three ab- biblical obligations, right? Sharak, Hisuta, and Onata, which basically, yes, there was a little bit of a difference according to the Tanaim, but it's essentially, right, sustenance, clothing, and conjugal rights that he is entitled, that he has to give her. That conversation or that discussion of the derisa level of marriage comes after a Mishnah, which added that he also has to redeem her from captive and also uh, give her a proper burial after she dies. It's interesting that medical care is not considered to be part of it. He can divorce her and she and at least leave her with money to get her own medical care. But it also makes me wonder this emphasis about captives if like, I guess this must have been like somewhat prevalent. Like for us today, this seems like an out there scenario, right? Like, you know, it's like not something you totally would plan for, but it, it seems, and I guess we're going to see this also at the end of the DAF, which Anne, I know you're going to talk about, uh, you know, when it talks about two different types of kings who maybe took women captive, this seems to have been something that I think did happen with much more frequency than we can even imagine. The taking of more than one woman by the king? Yeah, well, just the idea that women could be captive, like the fact that it needed to be part, it needed to be said that he, you know, it's part of the ketubah, that it's like that, that it's an obligation, meaning like we don't usually put into contracts, like the worst case or an, you know, a, a, a uncommon scenario. Like, I, I guess this did happen, like this really was a possibility. And I think we even see that with that discussion about the kings who maybe took women either as captive or to marry them later on in the death. I think that it was also very much a part of the Roman Empire way of doing business. Yes, I was just going to say that. I think it also is a reflection of they lived in persecuted times, and I think people were kidnapped. And I think also that we're talking about a time when you've got, let's say, armies traversing large swaths of, you know, Europe and then into the Middle East, right? And the women were at risk. You know, like, I think that this was a thing. I don't know if it was a thing in the time of, I don't know, in, like in the time of the Beit HaMikdash, let's say. Uh, the fact that it's in the Torah at all with the Eshet Yifat Torah makes me think that it may be just the way of the world. Um, but I think that in the time of Chazal, who are not so long after those marauding Romans came across from Europe, I feel like, unfortunately, I think that it was kind of like part of I don't, like the stories that we know from secular sources of of um, gang rape, like just bad stuff, really bad stuff. I, I feel like that's part of what they're accounting for. Yes, I, I, I think that's true. All right. Now let's go on to the difficult part of this stuff. Which the I difficult gave, part of the which stuff. Which I gave to Anne to have to lead. <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay, let's recognize before we even dive in that we're talking about rape and we're talking about rape in a way that, you know, I want to say that nobody alive today would countenance, except for that is also not true because all kinds of people countenance all kinds of things. But suffice it to say that Yardena and I, I, I'm speaking for you, Yardena, we do not countenance this view of rape, which we're going to hear in one moment. And the good news is that we think the Gemara doesn't countenance it either. 
even if other people are going to explore a particular viewpoint about rape, which let's be honest, persists even in today. I mean, we in America, at least we see modern lawmakers who talk this way. Let's read it. it. Right. So this is this is a persistent. I don't think this is I I guess I want to frame it this way. I don't think this is the Gemara's viewpoint about rape. I think the Gemara is exploring a very disturbing male viewpoint about rape. Now you so I'm gonna rape. I'm gonna take it from you and and frame it a little bit differently. What we have in this Gemara, and you'll hear it in one moment. I'm sorry for all the preamble. Is that we have a viewpoint that is represented, and then we have the Gemara, right? Meaning the Gemara that doesn't have that isn't named that does on occasion ask questions, ask for sources, give opinions, and so on. And it is my take. And I think your Dana, yours as well, that the Gemara at large does not accept this view that we don't like either. Here we go. Lo katavla. So the this is a citation from the Mishnah, right? We're talking about the case where the husband did not write the 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 whole idea is the, is there a document in place that would require him that he would then redeem her if she were ever taken captive, and. The point is that even if he didn't write it, even if he didn't stipulate it, he is nonetheless obligated to do so because it's a stipulation of the court. And it goes into this kind of like, you know, she brings this and he brings that. And that's how they have a marriage equation. So Shmuel, we know Shmuel is the bar plugged of Rav very often. And he's known for his expertise in monetary matters. In this case, the Gemara quotes the father of Shmuel and it quotes him. By giving his name or his identity as the father of Shmuel, we'll come back to that in a moment. He sh- he says as follows, and you know, grab onto your ears because I know you don't want to hear this. Aisha Yisrael asura So the the stipulation is that a Jewish woman who was raped is then forbidden to her husband. Shmuel's father says that we're concerned that maybe it began, the whole ordeal began as a matter of rape, but maybe by the time the act had been completed, she was there willingly. Meaning maybe she gave in, maybe she was, you know, just as happy, she uh, acquiesced, right? Like, the whole point is that at this point, the question is, is it possible that at some point she stopped being an unwilling participant and became a willing participant? And if she's a willing participant, then she's forbidden to her husband because that's like tantamount to adultery, even though it began as rape. Now, we don't like this, right? We don't like this because rape, I think, is rape. And I know that it can be more complicated than that, especially if you're talking about people who knew each other from before. Fine. I'm not saying anything about any one particular case. Here, in this case, in the Gemara, we're talking about a woman who's been taken captive and raped, right? We're not talking about like a, an old fling with you know that went... I don't know. Rape is rape. Fine. So Rav doesn't like Shmuel's father's position either. Eight ve Rav avoid Shmuel. Im tishta bay I'm sorry. Afrikina Afrikinech vaotvinech li le into. So Rav says to Shmuel's father, right, that the whole thing, the stipulations of the of the marriage of the Ketubah say, if you're taken captive. I will redeem you, but it's not just I will redeem you. I will bring you back to be my wife. Meaning, how can the Ketubah say that I will bring you back to be my wife if you're going to say that rape invalidates their ability to be together? And the answer here, 
and this is one of the reasons that I think that the Gemara is not favorable to Avuah to, Shmuel to, father, to Shmuel's father, is Ishtik. Shmuel's father has no answer to Rav's very good point, right? Like, the Gemara allows them to be together. So what's Shmuel's father, how is he doing this? Now, another thing that we talked about, Yordana, you and I talked about this, that Shmuel's father has a name. Now, if you look up his name, his name is found on in Masach Brachot Daf, Shmuel Nasr, you know, Yud Bet, no, I'm sorry, Yud Chet, right? The right, on eighteen, the, it's up on page right, on 18. eighteen, bad. Yeah. The the fact that his name there is presented as Abba Bar Abba. Now that's a kind of a wacky name, right? Except for that, Abba really was a name. It didn't just mean father. And I know people to this day who are named Abba. I guess you know in the heritage of the Gemara that names people Abba. So the father of Shmuel was named Abba Bar Abba. And on Daf Yudchet, it says, Abba Bar Abba Avua de Shmuel, meaning it gives his name and it gives his identity as Shmuel's father. On this Daf here, we don't see Abba Bar Abba. We don't see his name. We only see his relationship to Shmuel because meaning that's why he's having this conversation with Rav to begin with. Rav and Shmuel debated. So now this Shmuel's father is part of the conversation. Part of my take here is that when the Gemara isn't even giving him his own name. And I may be reading in here, and I acknowledge that. But it seems to me that there's kind of like a subtle, very subtle dig at their, like, that they're not giving him his full kavot. They're not giving him his full honor. And so that there's a very quiet rejection of the whole piece of his old position, even without Rav's, you know, very clear and, and relevant content objection, right? Meaning... It, it, there's just something that feels not very friendly to the position of of Shmuel, of Shmuel's father, and I think we also don't feel very friendly to it. So that you know reads well as far as I'm concerned. So Rav's Rav goes further in talking. Um, he talks about Shmuel's father with the following verse: "Kare Rav sarim atzru this is a passage from Eov, the book of Job, that the princes held back from talking and they laid a hand upon their mouths. My eat le lememar, bishfuya he kilo. So, what is this? What is this Gemara coming to? What is the Gemara bringing the verse to teach? Why is Rav saying the, this about Shmuel's father? So, the idea is that he, ref, the comment is, Rav's comment is, that he refrained from saying anything, despite the fact that he himself might have had an answer. Because what really could he have said in response, right? Meaning he could, he could have said, you know, that because she was a captive, meaning in the case of, in the case of the Ketubah, right, where Rav says to, Shm, to Shmuel's father, but the Ketubah says she's captive, you can come home. Maybe the answer to that is that they were lenient with her because she had been taken captive. But any other case of rape without the captivity, maybe that would still be the problem that Shmuel's father is talking about. Um, but he doesn't say that. He doesn't raise that as a possibility, um, which is, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what to make of the fact that he's silent. He has nothing to respond to Rav, but Rav himself is willing to give him a defense. And then the Gemara goes on, Lavua de Shmuel, right? According to Shmuel's father, where could you possibly find a case of rape that was where the Torah, where Hashem, allows the victim to remain with her husband? 
כגון דקאמרי אדים שצוותה מתחילה ועד סוף. So the answer is, you just need witnesses that say she was screaming the whole time, and then you don't have to worry that maybe she was, you know, you know, a willing participant by the end. But, but do you think she really believes in that standard? I mean, that is such a, it's such a graphic description, you know? I, I don't know. I, like, I, I want it to be representative. That line of the Gemara almost bothers me more. Maybe it does bother me than the statement of Avua Deshmoel. Because like Avua Deshmoel, it could be like, okay, there's an Amor who's like, says crazy things. But something about that description, it, it's so terrible. I don't even know what to say. <laughs> so I relate to it differently. And again, it might be wishful thinking on my part, you know, whatever, too rosy colored. But I relate to it as the Gemara is giving any witness who can come forward to attest to the fact that she was raped, you know, leeway to say, to acknowledge that she was an unwilling participant throughout. Does that mean that she literally had to be screaming the whole time? So if we're going to be literalists with a daf, then that might be what it means. My initial read is not that that's what it means. It means, are there, are there witnesses who can attest to the fact that she was not ever a willing participant? And I, you know, I think that that's, I think anybody could come forward and say she was raped. She was being raped. That she didn't have to be screaming the whole time to make for it to be clear that she didn't want to be there. Right. And I think we know enough people who are, you know, therapists and so on who can acknowledge the fact that, you know, when a person is undergoing an event of trauma, people handle it differently. And some people get very quiet and some people get very loud, right? Like so the the phenomenon of how somebody is demonstrating their lack of willing participation, that it has to be screaming, I want to give Chazal credit that they knew that that's not all there is to it, that it doesn't, you know, that there's, you could be an unwilling participant without actively screaming the whole time. I got to think about that, but I hear what you're saying. Go on. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So again, the goodbye goes on here, right? There's that we're not going to do the hold off because because there's a lot here, but just to, you know, round out the rest of this discussion, Opliga de Rava. So, Avod Shmuel, the father of Shmuel, disagrees with the opinion of Rava. The Ama Rava. Now, right, we've been talking about Rav and Shmuel's father. Now we're moving on to Rava. What did Rava say? So what happens? Rava said that in any case that starts as rape, meaning he posits that there is a potential for such a thing, that uh, that uh, the event could begin as rape and end with her being a willing participant, even if she ultimately says, right, she, she says, you know, leave him. She says that, um, that the the... I want to read this inside again carefully so that we can make sure that we get all the meaning here. Even if she says, leave him, meaning leave him alone, right? And then she says, had it not been the case that he raped her, she would have gone after him. She would have pursued him for the sake of sexual relations. Nonetheless, she's allowed to go back to her husband. Meaning, Rava is making, I, I think, Yardana, that we can say that this is Rava making a sweeping generalization, uh, not a, a sweeping point to make the point in, in contrast 
to the idea that Tchilata, you know, that and then and the end, she's glad to be there. The point is that Rava says, even if she would have gone after him for the sake of this dynamic, right? She's still allowed to go back to her husband. But why? Because according to Rava, and I think this is just, you know, a wonderful presentation, Yatsar al-Basha, right? I'm sorry, Yatsar al-Basha, the Yatsar, the, the evil inclination, right? The Yatsar Hara took hold of her. And she was therefore, you know, still in the act against her will because the evil inclination took over her, took her over to the extent that then she was able to be a willing participant. And there the Gemara is saying, there's no way she would have ever become a willing participant in this act of rape, except for the corruption of the Yetzirah. I think that it's really a very dramatic statement for Rava. And I think we have to accept that, you know, acknowledge this, how far he's going out on this, on a limb, right? A limb in the argument with Avua de Shmuel to say that there's no way that a woman who's beginning, you know, in the process of beginning to be raped, even if there's a halachic category that says that at the end she was actually a willing participant, he goes and says, like, but that would have been when the Yetzirah took a hold of her. And the idea that she's taken a, she's taken a hold of by the Yetzirah, how we understand Yetzirah, do you want to call it a dibik? Do you want to call it she's left, she's lost her sane faculties, right? Meaning, however you're going to look at it, she is not well in her ability to call this something that she was a willing, willing participant in. Meaning his position is very clear, it's clear to me anyway, and not by wishful thinking, that Rava is saying that a woman who is, you know, taken, you know, in rape is being raped. And that whatever the category is, however it ends, she can go back to her husband because she's never in violation of adultery when the whole process began as rape. And I think that that's a really, meaning he's saying that she's, she she couldn't possibly have truly, you know, in her own self, had an you know been a willing participant when it begins as rape. And I think that that's true. I think that that's accurate. I know that we have all kinds of terrible, terrible stories nowadays. Women who are taken captive, right? Girls were held in basements and that kind of thing for for and and it becomes a messy, complicated uh, relationship dynamic. I don't even want the word relationship here, right? Um, I think that Rava would come along and say, but that is not somebody who is well in their ability to assess that they actually wanted to be a willing participant. And Avuda Shmuel would say, no, but look, she can't go back to her husband. And Rava says, of course she can go back to her husband because all of this was rape. Yeah, I, I think, and I, and ultimately because that's the last opinion that's shared, I think that's really the opinion of the Gemara. Well, that's our top discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Barber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this difficult app on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.